Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We recorded with Zach Cox from Nesson earlier in the day, mainly getting into the future of this Patriots organization in terms of the quarterback position, the draft, the rest of the season, who are going to be the core members of this team going forward. Now, Zach brought up the Tommy Curran report, which I believe he said this on NBC Sports Boston because it wasn't written and it wasn't something that he tweeted about. But essentially, this blew up early on Tuesday evening. And essentially what Tommy Curran said on NBC Sports Boston was, when they came out of the loss in Germany, the conversation I had that week made it very clear that a decision was made. They were going to play out the string at the end of the year. They would be parting of the ways for a variety of reasons. So essentially saying that at the end of the season, the Patriots and Bill Belichick are going to part ways. And essentially Robert Kraft made that decision after that loss in Germany. Okay, so... That's a bomb to drop. Now, uh, I am a little bit surprised that this wasn't written or Tommy Curran didn't tweet about it, but the point is he said this on NBC Sports Boston, and you could see why this would be happening at that particular point in time. The team makes a trip over Germany. We know the international series is real important to Robert Kraft, and it's an ugly game. They lose to the Colts 10 to 6. There's that shot of Robert Kraft in like the huge coat. He looks totally upset during that game. It was a really bad Mac game, as a lot of these games have been bad Mac games. It was really an embarrassing loss for the Patriots, right? And remember, Kraft had said prior to the season, it's very important to me that we make the playoffs. Okay, so now in my conversation with Zach, I make the case like the case that Bill would make if he was going to keep his job, but it just feels like now there's just too much smoke around Bill Belichick and the Patriots parting ways when you have one of the most plugged-in reporters covering this team, Tommy Curran, saying that it feels like, or basically not it feels like, Tommy Curran saying after the game in Germany, it felt like in the conversation he had is there was going to be a parting of ways between the two sides, meaning Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick after the season, right? So it just feels like now 
this is almost, there's too much around it to look at this and say, yeah, Bill's going to be back next season. And look, I thought maybe there's a chance if they can play well, at least down the stretch of the season and Bill can make an argument towards him keeping his job. But at this point, it just feels like it's going to be time for Bill Belichick and the Patriots to go in their different directions. And based how things have gone, it's justifiable, right? But my whole thing with this now is it's just sad to see. It ends with Bill Belichick having an awful season and really his worst season as a Patriots coach. I know we can go all the way back to 2000, but basically for 20 years, this was a dynastic run. And even last year when it was ugly, it wasn't like this with the team has three wins and you just never wanted it to end this way. Obviously, dynasties never end pretty, right? Like the Cowboys, they won a Super Bowl without Jimmy Johnson, but it was ugly after that. Barry Switzer was not, of course, Jimmy Johnson as a coach. And it was ugly that Jimmy Johnson, who I know him and Jerry Jones have made up recently, but Jimmy Johnson was an outstanding coach. Who knows what that organization would have continued to be if they never moved on from him. This is one of the great coaches. This is one of the guys that Bill Belichick learned from, right? We know how the Bulls situation ended with them wanting to move on from Phil Jackson, right? I mean, during COVID, we all watched the documentary where Michael Jordan essentially said, hey, if Phil's not here, I'm not going to be here. Scottie Pippen was not going to get a long-term contract extension with the organization, so that ended ugly. And really, that's been an irrelevant franchise basically since Michael Jordan left outside of that little stretch with Derrick Rose where they were a competitive franchise. They were a dumpster fire again, right? You think about the Shaq, Kobe Lakers. That was a mess at the end where Shaq and Kobe disliked each other and that thing got dismantled. Now Kobe and Pau Gasol got it back on track, but they were bad for an extended period of time there until 2008. So that ended ugly. Think about the Spurs, right? Yeah, they won all those championships with Kawhi or excuse me, with Tim Duncan and Manu Ginobili and Parker. And then Kawhi comes around. You feel like, oh, this thing's going to keep going on after those guys end up retiring. And then what happens? Well, Kawhi and the organization have issues in terms of his injury, the quad situation there. So that ends ugly. And it's just sad to me because a lot of this is Bill's own doing, right? The drafts, we've been through this, the Patricia stuff. But I just hate that this is sort of how it's coming to an end. And Curran's dialed in. So we have no reason to believe that report not to be true, right? He's He's a great reporter, dialed in reporter, especially he was dialed into the Brady camp. We all know this, right? And I just look at it from the perspective of, it's just tough to see it end this way. You never wanted to see it end this way, and it's just sad. Like, the thing is, we never, and this is one of the great things of Tom Brady's career, we never saw him suck. That's the silver lining, I guess, from a Patriots perspective. And he never sucked with the Bucks either. He was still pretty good last year, right? He could still be better than most of the quarterbacks in the NFL right now, so we never saw him suck. But we did see Bill stink at the end, and there's no way around it. He's been bad for basically two years, right? And Look, I thought, hey, it went well in 2021, and I felt optimistic after that. Now, maybe I was drinking too much of the Kool-Aid at that particular point in time, but I thought, okay, at least they're going to be a competitive, plucky team. They they needed to do some work, upgrade some things, and it just went in the wrong direction. We all know why. Now, Bill, there's a possibility that he could redeem himself elsewhere if there's a market for him. And again, this is all based on if this happens, if they move on from Bill in the offseason, like Tommy Kern's reporting basically indicates. But I just really hope that Bill gets another job somewhere else because we've seen him suck here. So if he goes somewhere else and he's bad, then it's no different than him being bad here, right? So 
I'd like to see Bill go somewhere like Tom Brady went somewhere else. He won a Super Bowl. I'd like to, from a selfish perspective, I'd like to see Bill redeem himself. So I hope there is a market for Bill and I hope he goes to a team that if this is true and they do move on from Bill where he has an opportunity to win. Because the reality is this, since Tom left, seven and nine, 10 and seven, max rookie year, eight and nine, three and 10. So what, 28 and 35, that's a 441 winning percentage. That's the same winning percentage that Chip Kelly has as an NFL coach. It's worse than Rex Ryan at 480 since Tom left. I just can't see him walking away. If somebody gives him another chance, he's going to want to do it because he's too much of a competitor. He wants to prove he can still coach in this league. So so seeing Tom Brady leave was painful, right? Because this was our hero. This is the guy that was the biggest reason the Patriots won six Super Bowls. That was tough to watch. And seeing Tom in a different uniform, for me with Bill, or for me with Bill, it's not going to be painful at all because it's been really bad outside of one year since Tom Brady left. So... I'm going to be happy that Bill has an opportunity somewhere else. And I don't think we can look at this and say, if the Patriots decide to move on from Bill, I don't think any sane Patriot fan would be like, this is a stupid decision by the Crafts. No, this would be, okay, yeah, this makes sense. We need a lot of help offensively. We just had Bill try to build around a young quarterback. It didn't work out. Bill, go somewhere else where a team maybe is closer to being a competitive team and have your opportunity elsewhere. So I don't feel like we'll be upset about this as Patriots fans. It would be one thing if they moved on from Bill like after 2021 when they were in the playoffs or right after Brady left, something along those lines, but he had a long runway here and he just didn't deliver. So we'll talk more Patriots with Zach Cox in a little bit, but I just wanted to touch on that report a little bit because it is sad that this is where we're at with this Patriots organization. And we'll see, maybe Bill can do something in the final weeks of the season that makes Kraft say, hey, I'm going to hang on to Bill Belichick. But we'll get into all that with Zach Cox in just a little bit and just sort of the direction this team is heading down the stretch of the season. All right, I did want to get to some Celts, obviously, because they take out the Cavaliers 120 to 113 at the Garden on Tuesday night and no Evan Mobley for Cleveland. So we knew this would be a little bit easier for the Celtics because Evan Mobley is one of the best defensive players in the NBA now. His offense has not been nearly good enough for a guy that was supposed to emerge as a superstar in this league, but his defense has. So if you look at the Cavs on the season, a 108.4 defensive rating with Mobley on the court, that would rank third in the NBA. Opponent shooting just 48.5% on twos, that would rank first. The Cavs with Mobley off the court, a 116.6 defensive rating, that would rank 24th. So they go from basically the third best defense to the 24th best defense and opponents are shooting 56.4 percent on twos that would rank 25th when when he's on the court they're basically the best in the NBA at preventing two-point opportunities from going in so the Celtics take advantage of that they put up 124 offensive rating and the Pacers lead the league at 123.5 so you needed to win this game with Mobley not playing certainly had to do that so That helps, certainly not having a defensive player of the year candidate type of player on the court. But I thought what stuck out to me in this game was this is a professional win for the Celtics, right? And the depth of the Celtics starters was on display. You had three starters with at least 21 points in Porzingis, Tatum, and Jalen Brown, and they come at you at waves. You had four starters with 17 points or more, right? And all starters in double figures. And I thought... Each of these guys sort of had their moment. Jalen was awesome, keeping them in the game where the first quarter was all Cavaliers. Jalen was doing his thing. Tatum came alive. Derek White made shots, big shots in the second quarter of this game. And Porzingis came alive in the second half after having a really bad first half for his standards, right? So that's what makes this team special. They have the best starting five in the NBA. 
And if I'm going to nitpick here, the one thing I'll say is now I give Joe Mazzulla some credit because he made an adjustment at one point in the third quarter where he decided he was going to put, he called the timeout, which again, you can use these. They're very useful. He decided to take Tatum and put Tatum on Jared Allen. And the reason he did that was he put Porzingis on Dean Wade. Because what the Cavs were doing is the Celtics with Porzingis were, were playing drop coverage. So that was giving Mitchell and later on Garland the opportunity to walk into open jumpers and especially open threes in the case of Mitchell. So if you look at the mid-rangers between those two guys, Garland and Mitchell, they were 5 of 8. And if you look at their above-the-break threes, they were 9 of 20. And most of those are coming off direct pick-and-roll action where they were walking into easy opportunities. They were making wide-open shots. So the good thing is they did switch that coverage a bit in the third quarter. So I'm interested now, as we get ready for these two teams to play again on Thursday, I think this is useful for the Celtics in terms of as they get ready for a potential playoff series down the road. Now, I'm not saying against the Cavaliers, but just in general, like this is as close as you're going to get to a playoff series, right? Where you play the Cavs on Tuesday and then you play them on Thursday. The same thing's going to happen with the Magic. You play them on Friday and then you're going to play them on Sunday, which I kind of like from an NBA perspective, sort of not that it gives you a playoff feel, but I do think you juice up, I don't want to say rivalries, but you juice up matchups a little bit more. So I want to see what they do on Thursday because you can't play this coverage against Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland because they're really good at it. And Joe did have an answer in the third quarter. I just wonder if they start differently in that game on Thursday because you can't be letting these guys just walk into open jump shots because these guys are really good when it comes to that. And if you look at it, the one other thing, if I'm going to complain, is Donovan Mitchell goes for 29. Now, you did slow him down there in the fourth quarter, but if you look at Donovan Mitchell against the Celtics last season, he was 57 of 118 from the floor, 48.3%. He was 16 of 41 from deep, 39%. He averaged 37.5 points per game in his four games. He had 29, as I mentioned tonight. He had three 40-point games last year against the Celtics, okay? Enough's enough with that. Now, part of it, like I said, is the scheme. Like, you can't just allow him to have these easy opportunities and to pull up jump shots. But the other thing is, I want to see if they switch the scheme. And I also want to see, like, you think about all the great defenders this team has. When we're talking about White, we're talking about Holiday, we're talking about Jason Tatum, right? I want to see somebody put out that fire on Thursday night. Like, make Donovan Mitchell have an inefficient shooting night. And look, part of it, as I acknowledge, has to come down to the schematics as well. But you got to put that fire out. You can't let him go off again like we've seen over the past year last year and into the first game of this season, right? Because the Cavs in this game put up a 116.5 offensive rating. That would be the 23rd ranked defense. The Celtics play defense tonight like the 23rd ranked defense. Now, I give them credit. They turned it on in certain or during certain times of the game where they got critical stops. But it's got to be more consistent for my liking on Thursday. And then they came out in this game, right? Did the Celtics and they missed a bunch of threes. Like that was sort of like they got some good shots that they just missed. But what I felt like stuck out to me in the first half of the game, the more aggressive team was winning, right? Because if you look at the first two quarters of this game, in the first quarter, in terms of restricted area attempts, you know, that little circle around the basket there. The Cavs took 12 and they had eight makes. The Celts took four and they had four makes. So Cleveland won the quarter 31 to 21. In the second quarter, the Celtics took eight attempts in the restricted area, made five. The Cavs had just two and they made one. So the Celtics won that quarter 38 to 29. 
So you get outscored by eight in the first, or you get outscored in the restricted area by eight in the first, you lose the quarter by 10. You outscore the Cavaliers by eight in that second quarter in the restricted area, you win by 11. That's about aggressiveness. That's about getting downhill. And that was about your two best players. You look at the first half combined, Jalen Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, eight for nine in the restricted area. That's what you want to see, put pressure on the basket, especially when Mobley's out. The only rim protector you have in there is Jared Allen. The point of attack defenders for the Cavaliers are not good. Just get to the damn basket. You don't have to settle for threes against these guys. You can go by Garland. You can go by Mitchell. You can go by Struess. You can go by Akuro. Whoever they're putting out there. Dean Wade. Karis Levert. They don't have good perimeter defenders. What makes that team a good defense is Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. Neither one of those guys are out there. Just get to the basket, especially when you're bringing up Jared Allen into the action. You're going to get driving lanes to the basket. So I just felt like that's what I like to see from your two best players in terms of the reputation in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Use your athleticism, right? This is like a matchup that the Celtics have a significant advantage on in the wings. And I know they went out and they signed Max Struess and he can shoot threes. Max Struess can't guard Tatum. We, we saw that. He cannot guard Jason Tatum, right? And nobody on that team should be able to guard Jalen Brown. So when I just look at it, I love the fact that the, both those guys were attacking. Now, in the first half, if you look at it, they were 0 of 8 outside of the restricted era, right? But they were also in that first half, they got to the free throw line 13 times combined, right? Attack mode. That's what I love to see from these two guys, right? And look, they hit a couple of threes later on in the game, but Tatum was just 2 of 9. Jalen was 1 for 5. I just like that they were in that mode where they were like, we're going to get to the basket. Tatum needs to be doing that more often now because he is struggling shooting the basketball. If you look at Tatum prior to tonight, his last seven games, 16 of 55 from deep, 29.1%. After tonight, what's that? 18 of 64, 28.1% over his last eight games from deep, right? So Tatum, at the beginning of the season, the first 14 games, he was shooting the three ball well, 38.4%. But he's been below 36% in each of the last two seasons, and now he's been struggling from deep. But the one thing I liked about tonight, he was getting downhill, and he got to the free throw line nine times, and he hit all nine of his free throws, which is massive. So that's huge for this team, is, hey, if Tatum's three-point shot is not falling, he's got to get easier opportunities in the basket. We saw him working on his post game as well in this one, and just get to the free throw line. That was awesome. And if you look at this game in terms of just as a team, they took 26 free throws. Tatum, as we mentioned, took nine. Porzingis also took nine. If you look at that 26 number, that would rank fourth in the NBA this season in terms of attempts per game. The Celtics were at 21.6 coming into this one, 20th in the NBA. So they talk about all the time winning the three-point battle, but tonight they dominated the free-throw line battle, which this is another area you can win. The Celtics, you can get to the line a lot. Now, the Celtics already do a good job not fouling. I'll get to that in a second. But you look at the numbers. They were 26 of 26 at the free throw line. Hit all of them. The Cavaliers were 6 of 9. So you beat them by 20 points at the free throw line. So this is just another area where the Celtics, they have the ability to dominate. I know they want to dominate the three-point line, but you can dominate at the free throw line because, and to their credit, they do not foul. The Celtics on the season, they give up just 19.6 free throws per game, third fewest in the league. So you already know on one end, you're going to dominate that. You're not going to give up free throws. That's who the Celtics are. They've been this way for the past couple of years. They do not foul. But the one thing I'll mention, and I keep coming back to this, whether it's getting to the rim more or getting to the free throw line, you need to dominate in one of those areas. And we saw tonight they dominated at the free throw line, which you love to see. And up your drive game, 
We saw them driving by defenders left and right in this game. You look at it on the season, they're 28th in drives per game. Drive the basketball more. You're too athletic. You have too many advantages with these two wings. That's what aggravates me so much about Jalen. I talk about it all the time. Just get downhill. Don't take seven three-pointers a game. Get to the basket. And we saw this tonight from Tatum and from Jalen, which I thought was outstanding to see. And you think about Tatum, like the successful plays. Early on, drive, hard lefty finish, 27-14. Drive, finish over contact or through contact, 31-21. Fall away on a Kuro. You don't hit the shot, but you get fouled, right? Because you have a smaller Okuro on you that can't defend you. Drive past Struess, get to the free throw line. Jam in transition from Pritchard. Finds White against the zone in transition. Makes it 46, or finds White in the zone. 46-41. That's driving and finding a wide open shooter. Drive and finish. Tie the game up at 52-52. Drive past Lavert. You're in the bonus already, so you get to the free throw line. Hits both free throws. Makes it 55-54. Corner three, that's a good three from Derek White, who found him wide open. He then found Hauser for an open three because they were overreacting to his drive game. Then he hit a fall away over Struess, which I like those shots from Tatum. I told you, he's shooting really good from the long mid-range this season, which basically, you got Struess on you, you got an advantage, you can hit that shot all the time. And then later on in the game, he hit a three at the top of the key, 113-106. You love it because he had opened up everything for himself by his drive game, by his post game. Jalen, immediately, lefty layup 3-2, drive and finish 7-4. Hard drive past Struess to make it 18-6 when things were getting a little bit rocky early on. Gets to the line on Struess when he's going by him. Struess has to commit a foul, makes it 20-8. Drives through Jared Allen, makes it 25-12. Backdoor cut, Jalen can be one of the best cutters in the NBA when he wants to be, makes it 52-46. Drives to the line, hits both free throws. He cuts off a Drew double where Drew Holiday has a smaller defender on him. You see Jalen, he's on the left wing. He just cuts, gets a pass from Drew. He finishes there, makes it 59-57. He drives past the defender, finishes at the basket, makes it 61-60. Then he works Struess down into the block and scored over him, makes it 120-111. to So that's my biggest criticism of these two guys all the time is that they sometimes don't make you feel them. Like the, the gift that both these guys have is Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And Tatum's obviously bigger than Jalen Brown. But both these guys are phenomenal athletes. They're big for their position. They can overpower defenders. And sometimes they just let guys off the hook. And tonight, they were both motivated to get to the free throw line, to get to the basket. And that's what made them successful in this game. I just want to see more of it. All right, the other guy I want to mention is Derek White, just because he hit some huge series. He finished with 17. He had a relocation three to make it 44-38. He had a wing three against the zone. And then he hit a corner three off the holiday steal. Jalen... Ends up with the assist. It makes it 46-44, okay? So he basically hit three threes in a row at one point during the second quarter. He had a nice top of the key three later on to make it 76-74. And then he hit a corner three to basically ice the game, make it 118-108. So prior to tonight, his last five games, 19.6 points per game, 32 of 63 from the field, 50.8%. 13 of 32 from deep, 40.6%. 21 of 21 at the free throw line, 6.8 assists, 4 rebounds, 1.8 steals, 0.8 blocks. And during that stretch, he was the best plus minus in the NBA at plus 81, was somehow a minus tonight, which never happens. But now he is 18 of his last 40 from deep, 45%. Unbelievable. And the one big thing about Derek White this year, and obviously tonight is not an indicator of that because somehow he's in the negative. The solution to the non-Tatum minutes have been just play Derek White. So if you look at Tatum on and White off, this is actually remarkable. The Celtics have a 115 offensive rating, 116.8 defensive 
rating 1.8 in the negative. Minus 1.8 net rating. Amazing. That's when Tatum doesn't play with Derek White. That's 311 minutes. If you look at White on the court and Tatum off the court, that's 124 minutes. 116.6 offensive rating, 107.6 defensive rating, plus 9 net. Which the Tatum, non-Tatum minutes, and Tatum's been bad. Now, tonight, not the case. But Tatum's been bad in the plus minus, really, over his last nine games or so. But historically, this team has been horrible when Tatum's off the court. Well, White on, Tatum off this year, it's a plus nine in terms of the net rating, points per 100. With White off, Tatum on, it's actually minus 1.8. So that's huge that they're actually finding something that works in the non-Tatum minutes. So Derek White's been awesome over the six-game stretch. You obviously know how I feel about him. So he's been awesome lately. And then Porzingis, despite the slow first half, he did nothing. We mentioned this earlier. He finishes with, what, 21 and 10, and he has nine free throws, hits nine of them, just like Jason Tatum. He had 19 points in the second half. And what sticks out to me is I feel like there's just an easy button with Kristaps Porzingis where it's just easy offense, right? So you start to think about it, what he's able to do here in the second half, he posts Struess, finishes over him, makes it 66-61. Anytime he has a smaller defender on him, this is what I say, it's a Chico, just throw it up to him, he's going to score over the guy. He's got that move where he just kind of rips through and he either gets a foul or he hits the jump shot over the guy. Three-point play over Jared Allen, who's a big, sturdy defender, makes it 74-71. Then he had this great stretch where he blocks Struess, and he blocked it off Struess when it's 82-87. Then he comes back the other way, and he hits a step-back three. Like, he dribbled in like he was going to drive it a step-back three. Just not many guys that hit size can do that. Later on, hit a top-of-the-key three, and then he hit a little seven-footer to make it 91-88 over Okoro, or Okoro, rather, when he got Okoro switched on him. He just worked him. He worked him. It was like... Four dribbles, he got basically right near the restricted area, a little seven-footer shot it over him, easy bucket. So he's just the easy button for this team. Two points in the first half, comes out in the second half. He was awesome. He was their best player in the second half with 19 points. So it was a good win overall. I really want to see what they do on Thursday night, in particular with the Donovan Mitchell-Darius Garland situation. Are they going to switch up their coverage? It's just the reason these guys were in the game is because Garland and and Mitchell were making shots that they're very capable of making, and the Celtics got to find a way to avoid those opportunities for those guys. So I hope we see something different in this game on Thursday night. But all in all, professional win. Tatum was awesome. Jalen, who we've talked about a lot in the pod, one of his better games of the season, I thought, from start to finish. Porzingis was awesome. Derek White was great. And then you had a nice stretch from Pritchard as well, where he had a steal. He had he hustles in transition, knocks it off of Kuro. So I thought he gave you some good minutes, could actually... Maybe have played a little bit more in this game. Hauser hit some big threes. <laughs> it was a weird lineup to start the fourth quarter, to be honest with you, where they had Horford, they had Cornette, they had Jalen was the only starter along with Hauser and Pritchard. Now, they ended up just tying 7-7, seven to seven, but there was not enough creation on the court at that particular point in time. That lineup had played one minute together all season before that. I thought that was a risk that Joe Mazzulla shouldn't have taken. Now, they did get away with it, but that was that was an odd decision. At least from my perspective, I thought that was odd. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat with Zach Cox from Nesson. Cash in on balling out this NBA season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 if your team wins. All right, and I'm looking at the rematch. The Celtics and the Cavs again coming up on Thursday night, as we saw in the game on Tuesday. I really feel like the Celtics have an advantage against this Cavaliers team. I don't think Cleveland matches up very well against the Celtics team. So how about we parlay the Celtics on the money line with Jason Tatum, 25 points, Jalen Brown, 20 points, and Drew Holiday, 4 rebounds. 
If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to join. The app is easy to use and there's a wide range of ways to bet, including quick bets, live same game parlays, the Parlay Hub, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and turn dimes into dollars this season. FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NBA. First online real money wager only. $5 pregame money line wager required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from Nesson, it is Zach Cox. Zach, what's going on, man? How are you? Did you enjoy Sunday not having to watch the Patriots? Yeah, this was uh, probably the best overall weekend for the Patriots in several months uh, between them getting the win on Thursday night in Pittsburgh. Basically, every team other than the Panthers uh, that they needed to lo- needed to win on Sunday, they all won on Sunday, helped their draft position. Uh, and yeah, from my personal perspective, it was very nice to have a uh, a rare Sunday without Patriots football this season. Yeah, fire up the red zone. All right, so let's start with that in terms of the good night for the Patriots, because then I want to get to the big roster move they made on Tuesday, or not that they made, that the Ravens made. But so Monday night, you have the Titans and the Giants picking up wins, which is obviously big. And the Patriots still have the strength of schedule advantage over the Cardinals. Now, Washington is sitting there with the four wins. So you have the Patriots have the Chiefs, the Broncos in Denver, Bills in Buffalo, Jets at home. Cardinals have the Niners at the Bears who are playing better at the Eagles, the Seahawks at home. That could be a winnable game at the end of the season, depending on the quarterback situation there. And then, and if they're in or out of the playoffs, Seattle. Commanders have at the Rams, at the Jets. They have the 49ers and they have the Cowboys. So that's going to be difficult for them to find a win because I was impressed with the Rams last week. I thought they played well against Baltimore. They've been playing pretty well. I mean, they easily could have won that game. So it was good that we had those losses on Monday Night Football. But are you worried at all that the Patriots now, like for me, it's, hey, you guys, you got to win against the Steelers. Don't get ahead of yourselves. Like, that's all we need. But are you worried at all that the Patriots could drop out of that top two? There's definitely a chance. Uh, They're still in that number two spot right now. Nothing changed with that this weekend uh, because Arizona was on a bye and the Patriots have the strength of schedule edge 
over Arizona at this point. That probably isn't going to change. The, there's always a chance that it can. Um, but I think the gap is big enough that they should end up finishing uh, below Arizona in strength of schedule once the season ends. And that strength of schedule is very important because that's the number one tiebreaker in draft order. It's not head to head. A lot of people think that it is. They'd say, oh, well, the, the commanders beat the Patriots, so they would be behind the Patriots in draft order. Doesn't work that way. It's all based on strength of schedule. So the way it's shaking out right now, you, before going into this weekend, you really had that cluster of six or seven four-win teams uh, that were all sort of sitting right below the Patriots. Uh, after this week, that has thinned out a little bit. You mentioned the Giants and the Titans on Monday night, uh, also the Bears and the Jets on Sunday. All of those those teams won. They are all now two games ahead of or behind the Patriots, however you want to, uh, however you want to think of it. Uh, so it's essentially... Uh, most likely a three-team race for those two, three, and four spots uh, because it doesn't seem like Carolina is going to going to give up the top pick, uh, which they are sending to Chicago. Uh, and it seems like most of those five-win teams are probably too far off the pace at this point to get the number two spot. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it shakes out for those three teams down the stretch here because you just read out those schedules. I think they're all reasonably comparable uh, you look at them and all of those teams have games that they can and should win uh, they all have games that they most likely will lose um, the, there's some tough ones on each of them between Kansas City and Buffalo for the Patriots uh, Arizona's got San Francisco Philly Washington has Dallas and San Francisco so it's really going to come down to, to the last couple of weeks and the la- maybe even a, a week 18 game here for the Patriots but Patriots fans can be pretty confident that they are most likely not going to be picking any lower than fourth. Uh, but obviously second and fourth would be a pretty significant difference in this year's draft. Right. And and the thing I think about is I hope that Steelers win doesn't come back to like hurt the Patriots because I got to be honest. And I said this on the pod the other day, I enjoyed the game. Like it was actually a fun football game, which we haven't seen in a while. So that was entertaining, which we haven't been used to. But at the same point, you're thinking in the back of your head, wait, should I be happy that Juju's making this play right now? Because wait, what's going to happen if they win this game? But I will say this, like, it's a great point on the head-to-head stuff. But it's also like, if you think about it, those were clutch losses because the commanders of the Giants, and I know Tommy DeVito's like running the world right now, they could be in a totally different position if the Patriots actually won those games, which at the time we thought those were very winnable games against a bad Giants team and a bad commanders game. So those losses that they sort of banked were massive for the Pats. So Let's look at this now. So hypothetically, let's say that the unfortunate does happen and they fall out of the top two, they fall to three. Now, they could trade up depending on what Chicago does. I know that there's been some momentum towards, hey, maybe they should keep Fields as their quarterback. I don't see that when you could get a guy like Caleb Williams who would be basically reset that rookie contract, right? It's the same thing we talk about with Mac Jones. And Fields, yeah, maybe he has potential, but are you banking on that when you have a guy like Caleb Williams there? Like, this is basically, this is like a decade-long decision you're making here. If you're wrong and you stick with Justin Fields and Caleb Williams is unbelievable, it's a really bad decision. And on the flip side of that, if Caleb Williams isn't great, you still, like, it's not that bad of a decision. Like, the safer bet is to go with Caleb Williams, get something in return for Justin Fields. So anyway, I'm talking way too much about the Bears and their decision-making process here, Zach. So if they fall to number three what do you think the most likely scenario is for the Patriots because if you look at the veteran market I guess I just mentioned Justin Fields there's not going to be a lot of guys available so do you think it would be 
hey, let's get the best, maybe the best player in the draft in Marvin Harrison Jr.? Or do you think they talked themselves into a guy like Jaden Daniels? Because I still look at it as if, like, if they don't get the quarterback, then we're going to be in the same position next year, unless you believe, like, Bailey Zappi's performance on Thursday night did something for the long-term future of the organization, which I certainly don't believe that that's the case. But it feels like if they fall back to three, that's why I ran through these schedules, that could be catastrophic, because then you have to wait another year to get the guy. Yeah, I also agree with your take there that that Bailey Zappi's performance the other night didn't really change the the long term outcome of the quarterback position whatsoever for the Patriots. Uh, I think an important variable variable in all this, even more so than the Bears, is the Arizona Cardinals, uh, because if they see enough from Kyler Murray down the stretch, they might not be inclined to pick a quarterback. I think if you're weighing Kyler Murray against Justin Fields. Kyler Murray probably has the stronger chance of his team saying, okay, this is a guy who's made Pro Bowls, who's been a high-level pro. We're going to ride with him. We're just going to try to fill out the pieces around him. So if it's a situation where Chicago gets number one, Arizona gets number two, Patriots get number three, you could see Drake May fall to the Patriots at number three. Uh, You also could see Arizona try to trade down and have a team trade up to number two. It, It obviously makes it a little bit Less yeah, of Trub- a sure thing if you're not picking the in Trubisky that number two situation. Spot. That that Trubisky thing, remember that when the Bears went up to two? Obviously, they regret the player, but sort of maybe the Patriots would have to do that with Arizona. Another North Carolina quarterback too. It could be a very similar situation. <laughs> but I can see it both ways. I I think either the Patriots need to come out of day one or very early day two of this draft with a quarterback. Uh, I can see the value in saying, "Hey, pick Marvin Harrison." at number three, and then pick whether it's Jaden Daniels, whether it's uh, J.J. McCarthy, whether it's Michael Penix. It it seems like there is a substantial gap between the top two and any of those other players. Uh, And with the rise that Daniels has had lately, it's probably pretty unlikely that you're going to be able to get him at number 20. Uh, Obviously, things can change a lot between now and the draft, but... uh, I think you need to prioritize getting a quarterback at some point within the first, I don't know, 35 picks of this draft. Because if you don't, then, as you said, you're still kind of in the same position uh, with even if you have that stud receiver or you have a stud tackle that you pick up at the top of the draft and you go out and sign Jimmy Garoppolo or Jacoby Brissett or whoever it is as a stopgap, you still need that quarterback of the future. And that's really the 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 point that all successful teams these days revolve around so uh i would be of the mind to if there's a quarterback you like at the top of the draft take him and figure everything else around him uh but if you do fall in that two three range things could get a lot more complicated just based on where guys are going to go and what positions are going to be available yeah it's going to be fascinating these next couple weeks to see what the patriots do because if they win we're going to be thinking oh man like please they did not do this. They did not not. T- they didn't. They didn't know how to tank properly. Like I hope we don't get into that conversation. I mean, they're also they're setting themselves up perfectly to need to lose in week eighteen to get a top two pick, and then they end up beating the Jets in yeah. what could be Bill Belichick's final game with the team. They end up costing themselves a pick or two in the draft, but Bill gets to go out with one final win over the Jets. It, it just seems like. That is a very um, possible scenario at this point. Uh, And basically, if you're thinking about what the Patriots draft um, outcome, if they win 
one or zero of their final four games, they're guaranteed to pick no lower than fourth. Uh, they have some wiggle room within that two to four range, but if they go two and two or, or even three and one down the stretch, then with that clump of teams right, right above them or behind them, however you want to look at it, there's a chance they could tumble all the way down to six, seven, eight range. So uh, there definitely is still room for a lot of uh, upward or downward uh, mobility for the Patriots here. Yeah, it's crazy, too, that nobody's catching Carolina, who, of course, their pick is going to the Bears. Like, the team that has no incentive to lose, they cannot win a game. And if you look at the top two quarterbacks in this draft and you take the guy that they passed on last year and C.J. Stroud, everybody would take these three quarterbacks over Bryce Young right now. And it looks like Indy may have just, or excuse me, Carolina may have just completely screwed that situation up. And now they're looking for a new coach as well. All right, so I wanted to ask you about Malik Cunningham because... The era ended before it really even started. So he had been active the past two weeks. I remember the Raiders game where he got a couple of snaps. He didn't do anything in that particular situation. But it feels like to me, Zach, that the Patriots sort of mishandled this whole situation. Like it felt to me they wanted to make him more like a do-it-all type of guy where, hey, he can be the scout team quarterback when we're getting ready for a Jalen Hurts type quarterback that's going to run the football or a Lamar Jackson, these quarterbacks that are athletic can move around, even to a lesser extent, Josh Allen, but those type of quarterbacks that like to move around. And then, hey, let's see if we can develop him as a receiver. Hey, let's see if maybe we can use him on special teams instead of just like letting him develop as a quarterback. And we kept hearing about the packages they had the past couple of weeks. Malik Cunningham admitted himself like they had a package and he was working more at quarterback. To me, I just feel like you didn't get advantage. You didn't get any advantage out of the player. Like you barely used him in a season where clearly your quarterback play was subpar. He certainly could have helped your running game. They used him in one game. I just feel like, and good for Malik Cunningham. He goes to the Ravens. That's a good situation for him backing up a guy that he crossed over with for one year at Louisville and Lamar Jackson. But I just feel like the whole Malik experiment was, it's underwhelming to me because we didn't really even see him. Yeah, underwhelming is a good word for it. It feels like a missed opportunity. Uh, and now, to be fair, we don't know at this point whether Malik Cunningham will ever have a successful NFL career, whether he's a guy that can play in the NFL, because we really just haven't seen it outside of that one drive against the Texans in the preseason uh, against guys who ended up getting cut a couple of weeks later. So there's a very small sample size with him, but it it does seem like he's somebody that would have been better served by just playing quarterback from the jump uh, from right when he got here. It really quarterback was his secondary position the entire time he was with the Patriots. Uh, it was notable in the last couple of weeks that every time you ask Bill O'Brien about Malik Cunningham, he referred to him as a wide receiver. He's yeah, he's a wide receiver. He's really improving. He's working a lot with the guys. We're giving him some reps at quarterback as well, but he's really improving in that transition to receiver. And we haven't seen him play receiver in any game since the preseason. Uh, but back in the preseason, he was a very, very, very unfinished product at that point. Um, and you've got to imagine he would have been somebody who could help, could have helped the Patriots uh, somewhat at quarterback, whether it was just to provide a little bit of a spark uh, in some sort of um, Taysom Hill type package, put him in for five, six, seven snaps a game, have him do some zone read type stuff. Uh, we never really saw that. He he played six snaps, as you mentioned, in that Raiders game back in week six, but was elevated from the practice squad each of the last two games. You really thought that was the chance that, all right, he's finally going to kind of get a little bit of run, see what he can do in a real NFL game. 
Because why not? Your season's lost anyway. You don't know what you have at quarterback. You might as well evaluate all your options. And he didn't end up playing in either of those either of those two games. So, uh, yeah, it just seems like it's going to be a situation where if Malik Cunningham does develop into anything with the Ravens, then I think Patriots fans are going to look back on that and say, what the hell? Why didn't we just play this guy at the position that he played in at, at a pretty high level in college? Uh, and as you mentioned, I think this is the perfect spot for him. Uh, he's he played with Lamar Jackson at Louisville has a similar skill set and now gets to go to an offense where the offense is crafted around using a mobile quarterback, using a dual threat quarterback. He was kind of the outlier in New England because he was such a different player uh, from Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi and Will Greer and really most of the quarterbacks that the Patriots have had here uh, for years outside of Cam Newton. Now he goes to a team that knows how to use those kind of players. Um, and again, who knows if it'll turn out into turn out to be any sort of valuable player in the NFL. But uh, I think this is a pretty good spot for him. And, and yeah, definitely looks like a bit of a uh, a missed opportunity for the Patriots. Yeah, the missed opportunity thing is a great point because it's like you think about it. Well, it's not like Dak Prescott who's having an MVP caliber season is your quarterback, right? You had one of the worst quarterback situations in the NFL and you didn't even try with the guy, which to me is the more irritating part. And from a selfish perspective, he was like one of the most entertaining players during the one pre the preseason game that he got into that I would have liked to see him play in an actual game. So that's unfortunate. I know he got a lot of support from his teammates like Trent Brown basically came out and said, go somewhere that they appreciate you and you can flourish, which I thought was an interesting thing to say. So I feel like players on the team maybe wanted to see it's not just the fans and it's not just the people covering the team. Actual players maybe wanted to see a little bit of Malik Cunningham. I think the reaction from players has been very notable uh, in the last couple of hours since this move was announced. Uh, you, you mentioned the Trent Brown's Instagram comment D definitely seemed like he believed that Malik Cunningham should have gotten more uh, of an opportunity here in New England. But uh, even the other players, you got to remember, this is a guy who is an undrafted rookie on the practice squad who has played six snaps in the NFL. And there were over a dozen teammates reaching out or posting on social media, being like, man, we're going to miss you, man. We loved having you here. Best of luck. Like, you're going to kill it. <laughs> they, they're like veteran linebackers are saying this yeah. about an undrafted rookie quarterback. You don't usually see that. I mean, these kind of transactions happen all the time in the NFL, and it's rare to see this kind of outpouring of public support for a player who, as we've mentioned before, really hasn't done anything at the pro level. So I, I think that speaks to just how well-liked Cunningham was within that locker room. I'm looking forward to getting down to the stadium tomorrow and, and talking to some of those players about just what his reputation was behind the scenes, because it, it, he was definitely someone uh, that seemed like he, he really had the support of players, young, old offense, defense, which uh, again, isn't common for uh, for a player in his situation. Yeah. And I wonder too, if players hear what Bill O'Brien was saying to the media about talking about him more as a receiver. And they're like, well, we've seen this guy play quarterback. He's pretty good. Why is he talking about him as a receiver? So I wonder if that sort of irritates players as well. And Trent Brown, like, say what you want about the guy. He doesn't give a shit, man. He'll say what's Unfiltered Trent Brown. Uh, I love it. I mean, as a reporter, I most certainly appreciate it. He's a guy that's going to speak his mind. And there aren't a lot of those uh, around the Patriots. Yeah, for sure. He'll say whatever he thinks. All right. So then the other weird story or developing story with the Patriots, I should say, is Ross Douglas left to take the receiver's job at Syracuse. Now, he's supposed to be more involved, like sort of from what I hear from the Syracuse side of it, of, of a Syracuse alum, is he's going to be more involved, like in the offense than just like the position coach. Like 
I don't know if he's going to be the coordinator, but he's going to be more involved in the offense. And of course, he is here with the Patriots. And he coached with Fran Brown, who took over that job. And he's only 29 years old. I didn't realize how young he was. So is this a sign to you that guys are preparing for maybe the staff to turn over? Or is this just a younger coach that sees, even though, I mean, he's going to the ACC, he's going to a program that's not very good. Like, and I can say that as somebody that, you know, watches Syracuse football each and every week. I hope they get better now that they've moved on from Dino Babers, Jimmy Garoppolo's college coach, actually. Or like, what do you think? Do you think this is more of, hey, I'm preparing because I don't think I'm going to be here next year, or this may be a better opportunity to advance further on, like in the college ranks? Is this just a one-off decision, or do you think this is something that we could see more of? I'm sure it's a little bit of both. Um this this does seem like a it's hard to call it a promotion when you're going from the NFL to college, but based on the reporting out there, um, it sounds like he'll have a I, I think it was quote significant role in, in yeah. the offense at Syracuse. Uh, the school hasn't uh, actually announced the hiring yet, so we don't know what his official title will be or anything like that. But this is a guy who, even though his title was receivers coach here in New England, he was kind of the assistant receivers coach to Troy Brown because Troy Brown had been there a little bit longer. Uh, at the very least, they were co-receivers coaches who kind of shared that one role. So uh, this is now a, a chance for him to at least take over his own position group um, and, and then seemingly have more input into an offense as a whole. But uh, I mean, I would be very, very, very surprised if he's the only departure from this Patriots coaching staff between now and spring practice. Uh, you're probably going to see a pretty significant overhaul, especially on the offensive side. I would imagine just because you need to, the results just haven't been there. Um, also seems like there's a good chance that Bill Belichick won't be back. And I imagine the new coach will uh, want to bring in some of his own, uh, his own assistants and whatnot, uh, as you would expect. So uh, I don't think you can fault Ross Douglas in this situation for having this opportunity to come along uh, to reunite with a guy that he previously coached with, uh, as you mentioned, back at Rutgers a couple of years ago. Uh, and rather than sitting here a month from now saying, all right, man, I got to find a new job because we just cleaned house here in New England. Uh, he's already got a bit of a, a head start on that. So uh, and yeah, he is. He is very young. He, he's younger than me. He's 29 years old. I believe he was the youngest position coach in the entire NFL uh, when he first took over that job last offseason. So uh, he's also been a guy that's been mentioned as a, a potential future head coaching candidate down the line uh, in some of those head coach watch lists that, that have come out. So uh, I'm sure he's a guy that whose name you're going to hear quite a bit in the uh, in the coming years. Uh, it seems like a good opportunity for him. Yeah, that's a good point, too, where it's like, OK, even if Bill is back, there's no guarantee that the entire coaching staff is going to be back and in all likelihood it wouldn't. So this is a guaranteed job where a guy, the head coach that you have a relationship is going, even if it's not the best job coaching at Syracuse, he's going into his first year. So he's going to get a long runway. They just gave the last coach a really long runway. So you're going to have an opportunity there to coach for a while. So it does make sense where it's like, okay, here's the guarantee. I go here. I know I have job security for the foreseeable future, unlike the situation in New England. All right. So you mentioned Belichick and you think that he's probably going to be gone at the end of the season. So I look at it since week 10, not the stiffest competition, but second in EPA per play on defense, number one in rush EPA by a wide margin. They're without their two best defensive players and, of course, Matthew Judon and Christian Gonzalez. So if I'm Bill Belichick and I say if 
he thinks that he, or if he prefers this job, the Patriots job to any other job, because if he prefers another job, that's a totally different conversation. And if he thinks he has one lined up, this is a totally different conversation. But if I'm him, my argument would be, I'm going to have an elite defense next season because we're playing well down the stretch of the season and I'm going to get a guy that I actually hit on in the draft, even though we only saw a few games of him. Like, we can say Gonzalez is a hit. We know that Judon's a stud. We're going to be good defensively. And we just won against a pretty good defensive team, despite the fact that they had some injuries in that game, with Bailey Zappi. Now, if I get a real quarterback, like this is the argument to Robert Kraft, Mac Jones, who we all know that Robert Kraft liked, he's not the guy. You just saw what I was able to do with Bailey Zappi, right? So four to five weeks ago, I thought that Bill was definitely gone. But I do wonder now if it's like, okay, let's look around the coaching landscape. If Kraft just thinks, hey, Gerard Mayo's a star. He's going to be the next great head coach of the New England Patriots. They did whatever they could to make sure he was back here. And I know Gerard Mayo this week was talking about how he loves New England and he wants to be a head coach eventually and all that said all the right things. But I just wonder, like, if Kraft looks around and he's like, if Gerard Mayo's really his guy, am I ready to hand the keys over to him now? Then the other component is we got to, if Gerard Mayo's the head coach, we do have to find an offensive coordinated or sort of run this thing now they're going to have to figure that out that out with bill anyway like maybe the answer is move on from o'brien move on from mac find an offensive coordinator for bill but i did think that this was locked that he was going to be out now i'm kind of thinking like i don't know could could they look at it and say maybe we make make another promise to mayo and i know they can't say they've made a promise to mayo but maybe we say after next year after the year after that like I wonder, like, is there a chance? What do you think the chances are? Like, if you had to put a percentage, is it 60, he's out, 40, he's back? Is it more like 80, 20? Is it more like 70, 30? Like, what do you think about this right now? I would probably say 70, 30, and that's just my own speculation. Uh, I think, yes, things looked better against the Steelers, but that also came after a three-game stretch that was one of the worst yeah. in NFL history from an offensive perspective. <laughs> yeah, uh, we were the first team in 85 years to allow 10 or fewer points in three straight games and lose all three of them. Uh, their defense has been good for a while. Uh, they've had a one of the NFL's better defenses or at the very worst, a, a top half defense really for the last five or six seasons. They're, what's been holding them back is is offense they're, and the quarterback position and the talent at wide receiver and the talent on the offensive line. And all of those have not changed this season. If anything, all of them have gotten worse. Uh, so I think that is the kind of biggest argument for saying, hey, we tried this for a long time. It just is not working anymore. Uh, and I mean, Robert Kraft, eventually he's going to have to, I don't know if put his money where his mouth is, 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 the, correct is the correct expression there. But he said for the last two off seasons, I need this team to be back in the playoffs. I expect to be us to be in the playoffs. I expect us to be at the very least in the mix and winning a playoff game, even if we're not back to winning Super Bowls. And if you go five straight seasons without a playoff win, you go two straight seasons without a playoff appearance, uh, and you go three of the last four without making the playoffs, eventually I think he's just going to reach a breaking point and say, I had the greatest head coach or the greatest coach in the in NFL history for the longest time. Things were great. It, you're probably accepting a somewhat of a downgrade in some areas if you move on. But what is the setup right now just is not working anymore. And I think 
that is the conclusion that he's going to settle on uh, by the end of the season if he hasn't already settled on it already. Uh, the, there was a report from from Tommy Curran, I believe it was last night, that uh, people he had talked to made it, quote, very clear that Kraft has already decided that he's going to move on from Bill Belichick mm, yeah. uh, after the season. Again, we'll see what form that takes, whether that actually actually comes to fruition, whether that's a straight firing, a parting of ways, a trade, or whether that there's some change of heart over these last couple of weeks. But all of the signs do seem to be pointing toward Bill Belichick not being with the Patriots uh, in 2024. Yeah, and it's a great point, too, on the offensive stuff, right? Because that falls on the guy that's running the organization. He did make the move to have Matt Patricia be the play caller. And if you look at the roster... And you say, well, Tyquan Thornton, that's a miss in the second round. Nikhil Harry, that was a miss in the first round. We had a guy that was undrafted in Jacoby Myers that played pretty well for us. And then we brought in Juju, which I know he played well against the Steelers. But all in all, that's been a complete waste of a year, essentially. Maybe he bounces back next year and has a nice season. But Jacoby Myers was actually good this season for the Raiders. And you let him go out the door. Jonu Smith, he's playing better in Atlanta, but he was a waste for the Patriots. Hunter Henry's been... He had a nice game on Thursday night, but overall, he is not at a great season. After having a pretty good first year here, he was not really doing much in the second year. And you can blame Patricia and Judge for that. But guess what? Bill put Patricia and Judge in charge of that. And obviously, Kraft thinks more of Mac than most people do. Like, he's a big Mac fan, as we know. He's made that abundantly clear. So he probably thinks that, hey, well, do I want the Bill to handle the next young quarterback, the next rookie quarterback? So, yeah, I'm... You're probably right. They'll probably just move on from Bill. And I, I wonder, though, this one thing, Zach, is do you think it's a lock that Mayo's the guy? Or do you think this is an actual process? Because to me, I, that scares me. Like, Mayo may turn out to be an unbelievable head coach. And I know it seems like he has all the leadership qualities to be able to do that. And all the players seem to love Gerard Mayo. I just wonder, like, is is that the, like, don't you want to talk to other people? Like, coordinators across the league, offensive minds across the league? Yeah, I don't think it's a lock and I don't think it should be a lock. Uh, and that's not any knock uh, against Mayo. I, I think he's a, a very good coach and will make a very good head coach. Uh, and if I'm choosing who should be the next coach of the Patriots right now, I, I would say Gerard Mayo. But hopefully from a Patriots perspective, you're not in this position again for another decade or so uh, right. where you're having to hire a new head coach and a new general manager. Uh, and I think it would be irresponsible for them not to at least evaluate their options, at least talk to uh, a lot of candidates around the league, kind of cast a wide net between young and up and coming coaches, older coaches, offensive focus coaches, coaches, defensive focus coaches, just really do the full due diligence. And even if that leads you back to Gerard Mayo, which again, I don't think would be a bad thing. You right. can say, okay, well, we took a look at all of our options and determined this is our best option rather than just saying, well, we wanted this guy to be the guy a couple of years ago, so we're just going to give him the job. I, I think it makes a lot more sense for for Kraft and whoever else is involved in this search uh, to really kind of make sure that they make the right decision because maybe somebody comes in and surprises them. I mean, I'm sure they would hate to, to do that to someone like Gerard Mayo to say, hey, actually, we're going to hire Coach XYZ from from wherever. Uh, sorry, but we got to go in this direction. I'm sure that's not what they want to do. But uh, again, I just uh, I think 
if you're if you're in a good place as a franchise, you're you're only hiring a head coach once every seven, eight, nine years. So uh, yeah, they they got to get this one right. Yeah, if Jim Harbaugh is like, hey, I'm interested in that number two pick. I'd like to coach the Drake May kid. You kind of have to consider it because Jim Harbaugh won everywhere. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Hey, bring on saying. Jim Harbaugh. It would be it would be a hell of a time to cover Jim Harbaugh. So I'd be oh, uh, I'd be all for that. Can you imagine that he wins the national title at Michigan, then comes here and coaches the Patriots? That would be incredibly entertaining. It's like the opposite of the Belichick press. Not that he gives you a ton, but he's just he has entertaining press conferences. The Bill press conferences, as you know very well, Zach, they're awkward. The Harbaugh co- uh, press conferences are just epic. All right. So in terms of obviously the number one need is, well, I guess head coach if that if it comes down to that, but also, as we mentioned, the quarterback position. So the next thing, as we were alluding to, is the weapon. So if you're drafting a quarterback early, which we both think is going to be the scenario, then you look at sort of now maybe they take a receiver in the second round, but you also have guys like Michael Pittman, I imagine the way that he's playing lately, that in, in having a young quarterback coming back from an injury in Anthony Richardson, they find a way to get a deal done, or at the very least, a, they they can franchise him. T. Higgins, though, I think that's more likely that he's out because they also have to pay Jamar Chase, and obviously he's going to get top-of-the-market money at the receiver position because he's the next guy up. And then there's the older route where, like Mike Evans, they were interested in an older receiver this past season, and DeAndre Hopkins, who is still better than anybody on the Patriots Right now, but Mike Evans is going to have another 1,000-yard season, or he already has 1,000 yards, and he did not have a contract done in the offseason with Tampa Bay. He was frustrated about that. But do you think they go into the free agency route or try to make a trade for a receiver? Because clearly this is something that we've been talking about it for four to five years now. They haven't been able to find a number one option since Rob Gronkowski retired. They they really haven't. Yeah, I think they have to. Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the clear top needs on this team, uh, yeah, as you said, it hasn't been since Gronk. Maybe if you want to give Julian Edelman that that title in his last full season. Uh, but ever since then, it's been a, a collection of number twos at best. Uh, and I was a big Jacoby Myers fan, but he was never going to be that kind of prototypical number one receiver that pretty much everybody, uh, all of the uh, true contenders in the NFL have. Uh, it's been a, a real weakness on this team for, for several years now, and I think that's something that they absolutely need to address this offseason, probably through the draft and through free agency. Uh, but even if they do go out and and get a receiver in the first round, if they take Marvin Harrison at number three overall, I still don't think that, well, it's hard to say because free agency is going to become, going to come before the draft anyway. Uh, right. But I need, I think they need to come out of this free agency period with a a T Higgins type, a a Mike Evans type, a a actual legit real number one caliber wide receiver. They they don't have to pay give, give a receiver the the highest contract in the NFL or anything like that. Uh, they don't have to devote all of their resources to that position. But uh, I think it's been abundantly clear in these last couple of years that the the lack of talent at the pass catcher positions uh, has been a real detriment. To this offense it hasn't been the only detriment obviously offensive line play and quarterback play have not been uh particularly good either uh but that's something that uh i think you need especially if you are bringing in a new young quarterback to uh to be your kind of qb of the future here yeah it's it's crazy in 2023 you need weapons and the patriots haven't had weapons for a while now i mean at least number one number two like legitimate number one options all right random thing that i've sort of I don't want to say fascinated with, but been tracking is Barmore. So Christian Barmore is ninth among edge players in pass rush grade via PFF. Not to say that means everything, 
but he's playing a career-high 63% of the snaps, career-high four and a half sacks. Not that that's great, but I was looking at some of these guys in recent history in terms of the defensive line position. They usually take the leap in year four, like Fletcher Cox, year three, four sacks up to nine and a half in year four. Quentin Williams, who got paid year three, six sacks, then he goes up to 12 sacks. Gerald McCoy, who, I mean, he's got at least a Hall of Fame argument. I don't know if he'll get in, but five sacks, then up to nine and a half in year four. So Barmore is a rookie banged up and he showed a lot in his, or I should say year one, he showed a lot, like some of the outlying advanced metrics are really good. Then year two, some injuries. It didn't really flash as much as he did in year one, but this season, man, it feels like he's been pretty dependable. We talk about the guys you have Judon and Gonzalez coming back. I mean, are we on the start of, hey, maybe Barmore does turn into an elite player at that defensive line position because it's taken a while. Like I thought, hey, maybe he takes the leap in year two, like Ramondre took the leap in year two. But maybe this is something where, hey, the end of this year, if he finishes strong into year four, maybe you may have sort of a third star of that defense to go and Peppers had a great season too, but to go along with Gonzalez and Judon. What have you made of the season so far for Barmore? Yeah, he's been a monster. He's been phenomenal really since... Uh, I want to say it was the Raiders game back in week six it was when he really it might have been the the Saints game the week before, but it was right around that area where he really kind of emerged as a guy that was going to be uh, involved in three or four impact plays in every single game. And, and he's maintained it ever since he's just been uh, he's been a force over these last month and a half, two months. Uh, I agree that he looks like an absolute foundational piece for this defense. Um I know the coaches are are really impressed with what he's been able to do this season. We were talking to DeMarcus Covington, the Patriots D-line coach earlier today, and he said he was like, he's finally realizing his potential basically in this third season. Uh, Missed most of last year with an injury. Uh, It took out basically half of his season and really kind of threw off his development. But yeah, you're really seeing now in year three what kind of player he can be. Uh, He's really improved as a run defender, too. That was kind of one of his weaknesses coming into the league. Maybe not a weakness, but he was certainly more skilled as a pass rusher than he was as a run defender, uh, which was part of why he he didn't have uh, quite as much playing time early on. Uh, But he's really improved in that area, become much more of a well-rounded player. Uh, And I think if you're making a list of players from this current Patriots roster who are going to be kind of stalwarts moving forward guys who could, who you could see being key players for the next contending Patriots team. Uh, Barmore is very high up on that list for me. Yeah. And I hope he does take any, like even another leap next year because he's incredibly entertaining too. Like when he, when he has his, he's a fun guy. Yeah. He's a, he's a funny guy. He really is. All right, Zach, before we let you go, some rapid fire here. So back or not next season for the Patriots, Kyle Duggar. Back. Okay. Yeah, I think so, too. I'm, I'm kind of surprised they never got anything done with him, but I think he'll be back, too. He's, he's too much of a leader with this team. The only thing I would say, like, the reason he may not be is he is a little older. Like, you think about it, he's drafted in 2020, but he is a bit of an older player for that draft class. He's he's on the older side. I just think the, the safety market's always kind of funky. Uh, I think the age will work against him. I think the fact that this year he hasn't, not that he's been a bad player this year, but he hasn't been... Um, as impactful from a, a takeaway perspective as he was last year. I mean, you remember last year he was scoring a pick six or a scoop yeah. and score every couple of games. Uh, hasn't quite been like that so far this year. Uh, I think the step back in the contract year and the age maybe will limit his value a little. Uh, and based on everything we've heard, he's a player that the 
Patriots want to keep around. Um, so I if I was predicting, I would say he will be back next year. Yeah, and I feel like, too, he's had to do more of the Devin McCourty stuff than he did last year because Devin McCourty was here, right? So Jabril Peppers gets to do a lot of the stuff that he was doing last year. All right, Josh Uche, I thought, was going to be gone at the trading deadline. They didn't end up moving on from him. I just, I don't think that he's going to be back just because he's more of a pass rusher. Obviously, we know he's not a bigger guy. I I don't think he'll be back. Where do you land on that one? Yeah, I think he's gone. Uh I think he's a player the Patriots like, uh, seems to be a well-liked guy within the organization, but the other teams value pure pass rushers a lot more than the Patriots do. Uh, I don't think he's ever going to become any more than a situational player in New England, uh, and I think he's just going to get more money on the open market from a team that is cool with just saying, all right, cool, go out there, rush the passer, pin your ears back, don't worry about setting the edge. Uh, A lot of NFL defenses, that works. Uh, not so much in New England. So uh, I think his value is just going to be more uh, in a team that runs a different scheme. Yeah, I feel like one of these like contending teams where they just like stock up on pass rushers like San Francisco or the Cowboys or the Eagles are going to give him like a one year deal or something like a one year prove it deal. And he signs that and he puts up like great numbers. And then the next year he signs with like some crappy team and he's not the same player that he was with all these pass rushers around him. OK, Michael and when you. I feel like they have to bring him back because they don't have a lot of good offensive linemen. I remember earlier this season, like he wanted to switch to tackle, which I think was about financial reasons. But if you look at this offensive line group, I just don't know how you justify letting him walk. Like he's your best offensive lineman. And quite frankly, he's been like that for what? Since Joe Tooney left, he's been the best offensive line. Like what the past three years, I would say. I think he should stay. I think they should work to to keep him. I don't know if they will. It, this draft seemed like, okay, we are stocking up for when we lose Michael Wenu in free agency next year, just with the the interior lineman that they drafted. Uh, I do think he's, I don't know if, I don't know if I want to say he's a better fit at, at, at right tackle because I think he's a very good right guard as well, but you've seen that he can play that position at a very high level. He's been far and away they're the best right tackle that they've had over the last two seasons. So I think the Patriots should keep him around and pay him as a right tackle and play him at right tackle. But given how hesitant they were to do that for so long, I mean, maybe they've come around in the last couple of weeks and said, okay, we, we want this guy to be here. We want him to be our right tackle. And we don't want to go into a potential situation where we're trying to replace our left tackle and our right tackle, because Trent Brown is also going to be a free agent. So I would keep him, but I'm less confident uh, in that than I am in somebody like Duggar. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a mark like a, a market for him. Like all these, he's a teams. good player. He's yeah. He's a he's he was a borderline Pro Bowler last year, and he's proven that that versatility. I mean, the game he had against T.J. Watt the other night. Uh, obviously, T.J. Watt ends up going in concussion protocol after the game, so maybe he wasn't at 100 percent that whole game. But even still, you put on a performance like that against one of the better pass rushers in the league, and teams take notice. Yeah, he should just have his agent show everybody the PFF grade, and he's going to get like the biggest contract in NFL history. I say PFF loves him. Yeah, Yeah, they do. Oh, the last one. This is kind of a soft spot for me, but Kendrick Bourne. I would say no. Um, I I think think there's going to be a market. I I think there is. Obviously, it's tough with like older receiver. He's he's not old. He's he's still got. He should be in the prime of his career. But coming off an injury like that. Uh, but I do think that with how well he played before that injury with him being far and away, the Patriots best passing game option. I, I agree. I think there's going to be a, 
uh, a Chiefs or a, an Eagles or a contending team like that that said, hey, we can get this guy at somewhat of a discount. He can be our our like high, high end number three or our number two. Let's go do that and give us another weapon. Uh, I feel like that's the most likely path for it to take, um, especially all, after all the the stuff that went on with Bourne and the organization last year uh, with the whole Matt Patricia thing seemed yeah. like most of that had been remedied this year, but uh, you never know how long those things linger. So uh, I think it would, uh, I think if they can get him for uh, a reasonable rate, a reasonable discount and and keep him around to kind of pair with Demario Douglas and whoever you bring in this off season, uh, I think that can be a pretty good receiving core, but uh, I don't know. My my gut says that he he ends up landing elsewhere. Yeah, the Chiefs make a ton of sense because they can sell him on the juju thing too. Hey, yep. come here for a year, and he would be a good fit with Mahomes. I mean, he's an unbelievable guy after the catch and say, hey, try to win a ring here. Maybe we win a ring, and you become like the second or the third option for us, and then, hey, you can get paid with a different team in the offseason. So I think that'd be great. I'd like to see Kendrick Bourne in a winning situation too. I feel like he brings a ton of energy to any team. I'd like... Nobody dislikes Kendrick Bourne, besides Matt Patricia. I guess that would be the one guy that dislikes him. All right, that is Zach Cox from Nesson. Zach, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it, and enjoy the rest of the season. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, great stuff there from Zach Cox. Always enjoy talking pats with Zach Cox, and I cannot wait for this season to sort of end for the Patriots. Obviously, none of us have had a ton of fun watching the Patriots this season, but I'm just anxious that they're going to win a game they shouldn't win and mess up their draft pick. And I really want the Patriots to take Drake May with the second overall pick. So I'm anxious watching these games now after the Steelers win. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.